All right, church. Um, hopefully you guys can all hear me and see me. And hopefully that video brought you into a nice, happy, calm space. Because for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about politics, which is either incredibly brave, incredibly naive, or incredibly stupid, and probably a combination of all three realistically. Um, now, you may notice my garb today. Um, with this whole politics series, I spent a long time looking in the mirror trying to figure out what clothes I was allowed to wear, and I realized terrifyingly I have a lot of blue shirts, I have a lot of red shirts, I have white shirts, I guess I have some black shirts, I have green hoodies, and every color that I picked seemed to be associated with some party, and I was like, I don't know what to do! So I'm going old school with the uh, official... Um, old school ministerial Baptist uniform. And if some of you ask, do Baptists still wear those? Yes, we always have. It's just that the baby boomers in the 60s didn't like tradition. So all the Baptist pastors in the 60s, 70s, and 80s just stopped using them entirely. And uh, now we're, we're bringing it back. Does it feel holy? Alex, does it feel holy? Yeah, it Thank you, awesome. Um, <laughs> well, look, today, uh, yeah, like I said, we're gonna be starting a series on politics. And now I know this is a, a crazy thing to do. In fact, I was on the phone with uh, Peter Tumbridge last night, actually, and I mentioned to him that we we're going to be doing this series. And he said to me, first thing, he's like, oh, you're brave. And I was like, oh, this bodes well. Um, and then he said to me the very, very common phrase, which I've heard many, many times, which is that there are two things we're not allowed to talk about in life, religion and politics. And then here we are at Golden Sands, Let's just do them both, which um, is very much on brand for us as a church. If you know our church, if you've journeyed with us, we tend to jump into the hard stuff quite often. It's kind of like, oh, is eschatology controversial? Great, let's spend nine months in Revelation. Oh, is membership old and outdated and people don't like it? Cool, let's make it the cornerstone of how our church operates. Uh, wow, Daniel's complicated, no one who knew who wrote it? Great, let's look into that book. So it's very much part of who we are, and there's a reason, a deeper reason for that, and that's because I think if we, if we put things in the too hard basket, then it becomes this untouchable, untalkable thing, and I just don't think that's ever helpful. And a helpful perspective that comes from one of my heroes, Mr. Rogers, who had the amazing program in the States. He, he always says that anything human is mentionable and anything mentionable can be more manageable. And so my hope is that on the series, we can take the unmentionable, make it mentionable, and therefore make it manageable for us. But before we do that, because if we're talking about politics, Everybody goes crazy with it, and it's weird, and people get into fights. So it's helpful probably to have a few ground rules about how this is going to operate. So first of all, in this entire four-week series, I am not going to tell you who I vote for, um, because that's just ridiculous. And I know from experience, other pastors that make their political affiliations known, it immediately causes like a gap between the people who aren't on that side. So you will not find out who I vote for, nor will I tell you who to vote for, because first and foremost, that's illegal, uh, and I could be done and by. Uh, but second of all, that's one of the key mistakes that we have made throughout the ages, is that I think we often overstep our bounds. So you're not gonna be told who to vote for, you're not gonna be told how I'm gonna vote. I'm not even really gonna tell you how to vote. If you're looking for a checklist that you can take with you to the ballot box to see who fits this checklist. Everyone does that one. 
I'm not even going to give you that because in my opinion, um, I've never seen one of those that isn't highly biased to the person who made it. And also it becomes incredibly superficial. And I think if we're just fighting about who do we vote for on the ballot box, we're actually missing the deeper, more important conversation. And it's, about, it's a deeper question, not about who or how, but it's a deeper question of what spirit do we carry into it? Which is why this series is all called Presence. This series is not about who to vote for or why to vote for. It's about what presence we carry. It's about how we engage. It's about what um, relationship we bring to it. Because in one sense, I actually, at the end of the day, I don't really care about what you tick on that ballot box on that Saturday. I think there's lots of faithful ways to be Christians within this, the realm of New Zealand politics. That doesn't bother me so much. What I am concerned about is what I see playing out on Facebook feeds, uh, on dinner tables, even in the church foyer here. It's the way that we talk about it so easily becomes antagonistic. It so easily becomes heated and angry. I mean, many of you will probably know you have certain people in your family that you cannot talk about politics with because you know it's not going to go anywhere. There's probably people in this church community that you can think of in your head saying, oh, I don't even want to get close to that with them because they're not going to listen or understand and they're just going to be hard to talk to. And on Facebook feeds, you've seen those debates. I've seen those debates. You've seen them where you can get people and family members that you know who then suddenly, for some reason, get vitriolic in an online argument about this party or that party or this policy or that policy, and we begin to attack and tear down one another. Um, I've even seen that play out within our church community. I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a moment about two years ago where we were doing a Sunday kind of finishing a series that we'd been looking at. And in the auditorium, this was back in our old concrete cathedral, we had these stations put up all across the church that people could interact with that carried different themes of different sermons. And one of the stations we had put up pictures of different world leaders. And above we had given a prompt that was kind of like reflecting on who God is and God's character. What does godly leadership look like? And how do you see that reflected in these different characters? And we had everybody from like Mother Teresa to Obama to like just everybody. But we also had Jacinda Ardern and John Key on this wall. And I remember during the service, I wanted to go hang by that wall because I kind of wanted to know what was going to happen there. And uh, while I was back there, uh, two people came up, and it doesn't matter who it is, uh, two people came up and were engaging with that. And one of them looked at the photos and they pointed at Jacinda and they said, oh, what a nasty woman. You can hardly see anything of God's leadership there. And the other person with them nodded their head being like, oh, yeah, totally. But what was funny is behind them, what they didn't know were two other people who were approaching that wall to engage. And they overheard that very same comment. And when they overheard it, they literally made this face. They went, and then they turned and they walked over to a different station. It was, it was hilarious. And now before all you Labour and Green supporters get on your high horse about how people are mean to Jacinda, it wasn't long before someone else came up and talked about creepy John Key who loves pulling ponytails and only uh, runs the government for his rich buddies. At which point someone else behind was like, and they walked away. So it's, it's this dynamic where we... For some reason, with, when it comes to politics, we can have a room filled with spirit-filled, mature, lovely Christians 
But then when the conversation of politics comes out, it's like we utterly forget the, the fruit of the spirit and we begin to engage with our gloves off like this graphic in just a boxing max ready to lay out against the other person. So this four week series is very much geared about what presence we carry. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter what platform we endorse. If we don't engage with the presence and the spirit of Jesus, we will burn bridges and not reconcile the people to the gospel that we are called to do. So this is about how to engage. Does that make sense? I hope so. I can't see any of your comments on here, so it may be going crazy on there, but Carl's nodding at me, so I'm gonna take that as good. Um, so let me pray, and then we're gonna just go into some context stuff today. Uh, Jesus, you know that the church has had a hard time with this topic over the years. We have um, done some great things. We've gotten involved and made some wonderful changes as we've seen your spirit bring healing and righteousness and healthcare to countries. Um, but we've also gotten it really wrong. And we've committed some really terrible atrocities in your name. God, my prayer is that for us as a community, for your church, as we talk about this, you will begin to free us of the poor ways of relating that our world is stuck in. Help us to discover a third way of engaging in politics, a third way of being a faithful citizen in this nation and in the nations around us, a faithful way that above all witnesses to you, Jesus, to your kingdom, to your plan, and to your love. Pray that you would guide us. Oh, Lord, help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I guess one of the small benefits is when I planned this series, I anticipated having to talk to all of you at the foyer after preaching. So maybe one of the benefits of live streaming is you can talk about it at your home and send me an email if you want to. Uh, we can have coffee. Uh, but so today what I want to do for the sermon is I want to talk about the context. How did we get to where we are? Because that, that famous saying of there's two things you shouldn't talk about in life, which is religion and politics, they're there for a reason. There's a reason why these things are hard to talk about. There's a reason we get antagonistic. There's a reason that it's hard to have these conversations in churches. And understanding a little bit of our history can help make sense to where we have gotten. So today we're going to kind of look at that. And so what we're going to look at is throughout history, when it comes to engaging in politics and faith, the church has tended to, if it's like a pendulum, we've tended to swing between two very different responses. And each of those responses has some pluses, but when you go too far, they bring some real challenges. And so we oscillate between those two. So one of the dynamics that we fall into is where we get all in. We get stuck in in every single way. We are ready to, to do it. And a lot of that is drawn from really good theology. I mean, all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy talks about how God wants a society to be ordered. He's giving Israel instructions about a way to live that witnesses to his kingdom and his glory and his majesty. Um, the prophets, the main things that the prophets are doing are political speeches challenging rulers and kings, and they're challenging them on their corruption. Um, those, of us, those of you who did Revelation with us at the end of uh, a couple years ago, that was incredibly political. We know that John had so much to say about Rome and the way that Rome was governing itself and faithful ways to be the politics. And so a lot of Christians have taken those texts and rightly decide that actually God does really care about our world. God does care about just 
governments. God cares about things running well and people being looked after. And so grabbing onto those texts, they kind of launch in and get all in. And so for the first 300 years, Christians were not very political. We were uh, a pretty small seen as a cult, uh, a fringe Eastern cult for the first 300 years. But then right around the end of the, th the 300 century, um, 300 century, around the 300s, Constantine converts and uh, he becomes a Christian. And that radically changes the face of the empire. Suddenly Christian becomes the established state religion. And that brings legislation, that brings changes. Other temples and other places are burnt down or repurposed into churches. And then from that point begins this kind of dominant period where the church and politics were highly intermixed. Um, you know, thinking about in the, the Middle Ages, the Pope, who's the leader of the church at that time, this is like before all the splits, East, West, and uh, Protestant and Catholic, before all those splits, the, the, the Pope was the leader of the church. And the Pope was very much a political figure. Kings and emperors were wanting to get the blessing from the Pope to legitimize their power. And so the Pope always had this role in picking who was in power and who was not. And the truth is, like, there's been some, a lot of good things that's happened when Christians have gotten involved in politics. I mean, if you think about the Old Testament, um, one of the things that the Israelites did when they came in and established themselves in, in Canaan, in the Promised Land, uh, is that they they abolished a lot of the forms of worship that were pretty horrific. I'm thinking specifically about the offering to Molech in which uh, parents would throw their young infants into a fire as a sacrifice. And so once Israel got in, a lot of those things were abolished. And if Israel was doing their job right, the foreigners, the strangers, the widows, the exiles were actually really well looked after. Um, in the Middle Ages, the monasteries actually became the beginnings of centers for higher learning. So Cambridge, Oxford, Princeton, all of those big, huge universities actually were born out of monasteries and theological studies that have been huge at raising the intelligence of lots and lots of peoples. Uh, I'd be thinking about the NHS uh, in the UK, that nationalized healthcare system, one of the first in the world of its kind, was very much pioneered by good God-believing Christians who wanted to get involved in politics to look after the sick amongst them. Um, here in our own New Zealand, in our own backyard, um, Kate Shepherd, who we know was the, you know, a prominent voice for women's voting rights, she was an evangelical Christian, uh, part of the Women's uh, Christians Temperance Union, and a key reason that she fought so hard for the woman's right to vote is so that they could change alcohol legislation so that not so many women would be on the end of domestic violence. Huge, and like first in the world to allow women to vote evangelical Christian, motivated by faith, getting involved in politics. And then obviously the most famous story would be uh, Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, who uh, God-believing Christian took the, the themes of Christianity, got involved in politics, and through lots of hard work, managed to end the slave trade in the UK, which then spread around into an international movement to, to the end of slavery. So lots of good things, lots of good things that happen when we get all in and stuck in into politics. The problem is though, those are highlights. Those are good moments. We've also gotten it wrong just as much as we've gotten it right. And when we've gotten wholly invested all in saying, we're gonna get in here, we're gonna change it, we're gonna fight the governments, we are gonna take over and legislate, that led to the Crusades. That uh, was pretty explicitly a 
theologically motivated endeavor to reclaim the Holy Land from the heathens. You'd be thinking of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, of seeking out and trying to get rid of the martyrs around them. Um, and the danger is that when you go all in in politics, before you know it, the ends always justify the means. If you can create that great society, it doesn't matter if you have to break a few eggs along the way, it's worth it to achieve that utopia, this God-fearing place that we were. And often that can trip us up. And we can see that most clearly in the life of John Calvin. Now John Calvin was and is arguably one of the most prominent theologians that the church has ever had. Uh, his writings, his institutes, which is kind of his uh, theology of Christianity, is still so heavily influential and informative and has spawned whole denominations and movements and his insights into the nature and character of God are outstanding. So an incredible Christian who went all in and it kind of bit him in the butt by the end of his life. See, he was this good reformer. This is obviously around, what is that, the 1500s. Um, this is Martin Luther's time. People are separating away from the Catholic Church. And Martin Luther, or John Calvin finds himself in Geneva in Switzerland. And it's a city that's trying to assert its independence from Rome and become its own city state. And through some back and forth, John Calvin ends up pushing for what's called a theocracy, which is a place where uh, the church and politics are totally mixed and the church gets to dictate all of the policies of the city. So the Calvin became the chief theologian and the de facto leader of the city. And he had deacons and elders who became the enforcers of the law. And like, to be fair, there were some things that Geneva did well at first, but the longer he stayed in power, the tighter that theocracy became and the worse it became for the city of Geneva. Um, it got to the point that any sin that was committed, any sin, was a legal crime. So all like crazy things that you could be done in for. Um, so I'd be thinking of, what is it here? Yeah, so uh, lewd singing. If you sang lewd songs, you could have your tongue pierced as punishment for that sin. Uh, Calvin had a arming, wandering army of deacons who wandered around to make sure that there was no illustrious dancing in any of the homes. And it was almost like the secret police who would wander the streets of Geneva to make sure everyone's doing no naughty stuff behind closed doors. Uh, it got so extreme that at one point he managed to outlaw or greatly regulate pubs uh, and the amount of alcohol that people could consume. And it was now instituted that there always had to be a formal prayer before a drink was given. Now, <laughs> that one got so extreme that the city almost revolted on him. People were like, don't you take my grog. And uh, yeah, the city revolted and he loosened those laws. But by the end, if you expressed a heresy, you could be banished from the city, literally kicked out of the city because you had the wrong thought, the wrong idea. And Geneva in his dream was that Geneva would become the city on the hill to which the whole world would look at as an example of what God's kingdom could look like, how the church should engage in politics. And it came to a head at the end when a guy named Michael uh, Servatus, who was a free thinker um, from France, he fled under Catholic uh, France, and he fled to Geneva. Now, Servetus, he was a Unitarian. He didn't believe in the Trinity. Um, he also didn't believe in infant baptism. He thought both of those were heresies. But when he came to Geneva and began expressing that and talking about that, John Calvin became really nervous about that heresy in his city, the church and politics, we should be all in, we need to make this just. So Michael Servetus gets arrested 
he goes through a lengthy trial and John Calvin, one of the premier theologians who understood God's heart and God's character so well, we have his writings calling for uh, his death, that his heresy of not believing in the Trinity is so bad that he deserves to die. And Michael Servetus was burned at the stake on top of a pile of his own books and his own writings. And um, historians disagree about the ending, but in many ways that kind of marked this kind of like turning point for Geneva and John, John Calvin's power there as it kind of waned and people looked at that and thought, and you can see that same desire today. Often um, when we wanna go all in, those of us who get excited about politics and we, we care about right legislation, we get all stuck in and before you know it, if we're not careful, the ends begin to justify the means. We get into bed with one political party saying, this is the only party that is going to achieve God's vision and God's dream of society. And if you're not voting for that party, you're moving against God's will. This party should be able to dictate the rules and the laws of the land. And it should be wholly based on scripture and the Bible. And before you know it, we start trampling over people who think differently. We no longer carry the, the spirit of Jesus, this reconciling gracious presence it becomes dangerous if the ends always justify the means, if the pendulum swings too far. So what you often see then is the pendulum swings the other way and you see this equal movement in church history, which is we need to avoid it. We need to separate ourselves from it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not engage with it. And you know what? There's some great theological justifications for that too. Um, we would see a lot that the way Jesus seemed to interact with the authorities at his time is Jesus didn't get involved in all the political phrase. He didn't constantly rant and rave against Roman oppression and Caesar. He said these weird confusing things about give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. That looks like a good separation, right? And then we read the letters of Paul and man, Paul, he doesn't seem to be, he, he's talking about personal salvation. God cares about our souls. God cares about our spirits. God cares about where we're gonna go. What's our eternity gonna be like? And there's been this movement for lots of church history where we say, look, this just compromises our witness. We are not going to engage and we're not gonna talk about it. And for a lot of spaces that has worked really, really well. Um, in lots of countries, the church has been able to make huge inroads, uh, particularly in authoritarian countries by, by navigating that line kind of carefully and not talking about it. You know, they can get lots of people saved. You know, they, they, people are coming, they're giving their lives to God. They are assuring their souls of their eternal salvation. And that, that's really cool. There's a lot of benefits to that. But just like going all in, if that pendulum swings too far, that also doesn't work too well. Because when you go too long not talking about anything, what happens when injustice begins to really mount up? What happens when people begin to get really oppressed and the church says, nah, that's not my business. I don't wanna engage with it. Sorry, we're not in the political sphere. And you can see this all throughout history as well. Um, you'd be thinking of, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, a common thing is they were so focused on people's eternal souls that they would do anything to get them, but they would still live in rife poverty, um, massive wealth inequality, there was still injustice, and then people were like, well, that's not our business, we're just trying to get people into heaven. Um, in Salvador, that was one of the huge challenges of the church is, uh, they're going through massive uh, revolutions. This was probably in the 60s and 70s, huge political revolutions back then. And uh, lots of people began to critique the church because the church seemed to just bless whatever new governor was there, 
not say anything against it. And as people were getting slaughtered in the streets, the church just kept throwing holy water and it's saying, it's not our business. We're just here to do this other thing. And they begin to compromise the witness. And if I could be honest, you can see this most clearly today in the story around George Floyd and his murder in the States. Now I know this might be political, but look, we're in the series. Let's just go for it, right? Um, one of the dynamics that you can see that's played out in America over these past six months is that um, people like George Floyd have been getting killed on camera many, many times. Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, countless, one name after another, and they're all getting filmed and they're publicized. And for years, the church in America, predominantly the, the white evangelical church, has tended to say when those issues come up in church, we've often said, look, this is gonna get really political and it's gonna get really controversial and we don't wanna alienate anyone. So we're just not gonna talk about that. We're gonna focus on, on you know, salvations and getting people's souls healed. And what happened in the evangelical church in America is you began to see this drain of any African-Americans, any people of color begin leaving these churches because the churches are losing their ability, their integrity, because if you never talk about it, at some point you become complicit. And this is what happened. So the church finally, once George Floyd was murdered and that went huge and there's racial protests all over the world, including some here in New Zealand, you begin to see this trend where uh, predominantly white churches begin having that conversation. They begin, they begin getting African-Americans on stage. They begin talking about how race is critical to the gospel and justice for the oppressed is key to what Jesus's work was. And that's good and that's a worthwhile conversation having. But I remember reading one article from someone who, an African-American person who said, I've been saying this for seven years. I've been in church elderships talking about this for seven years. And for seven years, you've been telling me this doesn't matter. It's too controversial for us to talk about it. And so he says, I'm glad you're talking about it now, but I still can't come back. It's, it's too much. And so you have these polar opposites. What now? Where do we go to now? If going all in can sometimes make us angry and vitriolic and we get into bed with the wrong political party and we make all the mistakes, well then surely it's, it's not engaging. And if not engaging and pulling back is supposed to work, but then if that compromises our witness to speak into the wide systemic injustices that are in our world today, then what are we meant to do? Is there any different way to go about this? Is there any hope for the gospel and for the church to faithfully engage? And I would argue there is. And it can be drawn from the stories of Daniel from which we've just come. I'm just gonna play a short clip from the Bible Project to do a better job summing it up uh, more than I ever could. So let's look at, this, look at this third way of engaging, not away from power or position, but away from exile. Let's take a look. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. 
And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually, they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line, and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. 
Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So we're looking at a third way. It's a great video, eh? As a side note, go look at anything from the Bible Project they've done. They are just an incredible resource on anything scriptural. If your home groups are looking for material, I cannot endorse them enough. But how cool, eh? Like, we've, we've just been spending that time in Daniel, and now we can use that to begin to fuel our imagination around what that could look like. A way that doesn't go all in, that, just, that the ends justify the means, nor a way that just says that avoiding the issue and holding back and going along with things are okay. There is a third way. And so what I want to finish with is by reading from that text of Peter, which he referenced there just at the end, because it helps us to clarify what this whole series is about and what this whole journey is going to be like. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2. And it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. This is beginning to describe a third way to engage. Notice as Peter talks about this and he gives his tips, none of them are about like, do this, don't give this sacrifice. Here's this way to stick it to them. Notice all of his advice it's character-driven. Peter wants to care first and foremost about what presence you are carrying into politics. And here's the truth. If you are avoiding it and never talking about it, then we are endorsing some of the injustices that live around us. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, multiple times when the king was doing something unjust, they stood up and they challenged it. They called him out and they, called, they worked for the betterment of Babylon. Yet at the same way, the way that they did that was with humility and love and laying down their lives through passive resistance. So it's not okay to get up all in arms and angry. Like, here's the truth. If I could sum up where this whole series is going to go and what we're going to say is that there is a very wide spectrum of where you could sit on the political space. We have people in our church who will vote new conservatives. We have act, we probably have, we have national. We will have labor and we will have greens. We will have one party, we will have top. We will have a whole spectrum. And you could be a politician in those parties and still try to faithfully follow Jesus. But if your character in how we engage with you is rude, brash, if you don't listen to the people around you, 
if you close your eyes to the things around you that's happening so that you can hold on to your own worldview, if you are a jerk or harsh, you are not going to ever reconcile someone to that kingdom. That is not the third way of politics. You cannot be a jerk just because it's politics now. The fruit of the Spirit must carry through us even in these difficult conversations. And that's why we're talking about this. I don't care about the ballot box. I care about our foyer. I care about your dinner tables. I want families where you don't have to argue and not listen to each other, cross-talking through political lenses, just repeating the talking points of different parties. I want you to be a reconciling presence at your dinner table. On Facebook feeds, as we have to challenge some of the misinformation that's around us, I want you to engage with humility rather than vilifying or demonizing the person that has shared it. Reach out to them with compassion and empathy. Your character, the way you engage, needs to reflect Jesus. That is the beginning of this third way in politics. Have strong convictions, absolutely. But say them and carry them in a way that carries the presence of Jesus with you. Does that make sense? I hope so. So we're going to finish there for today. That is the challenge I'm laying down. We're going to be talking about this as a church. Can I encourage you to talk about it in your home groups, and in, in the connect groups, uh, when you're out and about with your families, but challenge yourself to do so in a way that Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did with humility, patience, desperately seeking that third way, recognizing that our ultimate home is not in this political establishment. It's in Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, you know that this is hard for us. You know that we have made this mistake countless times, yet you still love each and every one of us. God, I thank you that your kingdom is bigger than our mistakes. Though many times, Christians, we, the church has got it wrong in the way that we have led, in the way that we have engaged, Jesus, your kingdom is bigger than our faults and our failures. Your kingdom of heaven, which you are bringing, is bigger than all of that, and we have trust and we have faith that you can accomplish it. God, my prayer for us as a church and for the church here in New Zealand and across the world is that you will remind us of the presence that we are meant to carry into these conversations. Remind us of the fruit of the Spirit that are supposed to always be with us. And I pray that where increasingly the dialogue breaks down into polarization and demonizing and misinformation and disinformation and disingenuous uh, attacks and policies in that toxic environment, which is our political world right now, I pray that you would use us as your church to be a salt and a light a breath of fresh air of humble, reconciling people with deep convictions worded in a way that invites people into your kingdom. So we submit that to you and we pray that that work would be done here in us. That is your kingdom. In your name we pray.